My name is Mark Pitt-Cavage, and I'm a senior research fellow with the Anti-Defamation League's Center on Extremism. Extremely is a podcast for anyone who wants to understand and interrupt modern hate and extremism. Hosted by Oren Siegel and brought to you by ADL and American University. These conversations feature expert analysis and fresh perspectives on this global threat and what it might take to stop it in its tracks. Mark, thanks so much for making the time. There's obviously so much that we can talk about in the world of extremism, especially the last couple of weeks. What I was hoping we could talk about, initially at least, is the annual murder and extremism report that ADL puts out every year and that you have worked on for the past several years. Can you start by telling us a little bit about how this report even got started? What was the impetus for you to begin to put this data together every year? Sure. One of the reasons why I started working in this area of tracking extremist-related murders, it was the data issue. And this is an issue that confounds so many people working in areas related to extremism and terrorism. It's really hard to find good information about extremism, something that you can try and analyze or use. You can't accurately track numbers of extremist groups or members of extremist groups because either they won't tell you how many people they have or they'll outrageously lie. You know, there are all sorts of problems with trying to track sort of underground movements and fringe movements. But back in 2008, sort of wrestling with this problem, I realized that one type of incident that, of course, was regularly coming across my desk was extremist-related murders, because many of them tend to get in the news. And I thought, well, this might be something that we could count. This might be something that could tell us something if we had enough. And so I embarked on a project at that time to try and create a database of all the extremist-related murders that I could find. I have filing cabinets worth of old news clippings related to extremism and slowly began to put together this sort of data set on extremist-related murders, whether we're talking about right-wing extremism, left-wing extremism, domestic Islamist extremism. I limited things to murders related to domestic extremism rather than international terrorism. Talk a little bit more about the way that you define domestic extremism and the types of individuals that make the count every year? Well, for the purposes of the database, the reports that we regularly do generated from it, we track murders committed by American citizens or long-term residents in the United States who have ties or connections to some sort of extremist movement. And that could be any of a variety of right-wing movements from white supremacists to the anti-government militia movement, to uh, the Boogaloo movement, which debuts in our report this year, to left-wing extremists, including anarchists or black nationalist extremists, or domestic Islamist extremists, and you know, occasionally some sort of more fringe, hard-to-categorize type of extremists like black Hebrew Israelites, for example. And uh, we try to identify these murders, whether they're coming from public sources, from our own investigations or monitoring from law enforcement or, you know, through other ways. And we try to confirm the extremist tie and certain types of information about each murder. I think it would be helpful to talk a little bit about the findings for 2020 
and what are, are some of the key takeaways uh, from the data that you've pulled together this past year? The first thing that people want to know is how many people did extremists kill during the year in 2020? And that number, thankfully, is a lot lower than we've seen in some of the recent years. Domestic extremists killed at least 17 people in the United States this past year in 15 separate incidents. And this is down from the 45 extremist-related murders that we had in 2019 and the 54 murders that we had in 2018. These are the lowest annual number for murders that we've had since 2004. That's really been nice because the past several years have been quite high in terms of extremist-related murders. The main reason why the numbers were lower this year than those years is because in most recent years, we have had one or more extremist-related mass shooting spree that really added to the casualty totals. The El Paso Walmart shooting, the synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh, the San Bernardino um, and Chattanooga shootings, the Pulse nightclub shootings. One person with an AR-15 can end up you know, killing a whole bunch of people in the space of just a couple of minutes. And thankfully, in 2020, we did not have one of those incidents. Mm -hmm. Do you think the pandemic at all played a role in that? Or, or are there indications that it might be something else? It's really hard to say. You know, certainly theoretically, the pandemic could have played a role, either more people staying at home, fewer crowds where people could launch a mass casualty attack. But on the other hand, some of these attacks that have occurred in recent years still could have occurred this past year. So, for example, someone still could have opened fire at a Walmart, for example. Throughout much of 2020, there were bars and religious establishments open. And um, there were, with all the protests and other mass gatherings we had, there were plenty of places where people were gathering in 2022 if someone had wanted to open fire at one of those. So we can't definitively say COVID-19 played a role, but we couldn't rule that out either. Understood. You know, I know that oftentimes when we're, we're tracking this stuff, I see a, a news article or one of our colleagues lets us know about some extremist-related shooting or just a shooting, then they're not sure if it's extremist-related. And I know I've spent a lot of time reaching out to you and saying, hey, Mark, have you seen this? What do you think? You know, does this fit the criteria? And I know that there's a lot of deliberation that you put in into what should be included and what should not. Can you talk a little bit about how you decide what fits the criteria and maybe some of those that for lack of a better term, or on the cutting room floor that some might sort of assume should be included in data like this? Well, we're basically conservative in our outlook. We want to see some sort of definitive proof that the person involved has ties to some sort of extremist movement. Occasionally, that can be very easy. In some cases, the person is a known factor in an extremist movement, maybe on the news all the time, and then you know they suddenly commit a violent act. In other cases, the person may not well be known, but it could be a white supremacist whose old body is tattooed with white supremacist tattoos. And that is what we in the investigative research business call a clue, right? That person clearly has some white supremacist ties. In other cases, it's a lot more difficult. For example, someone may clearly be, be racist, may clearly be evidence of racism somewhere, but not necessarily evidence of actual white supremacist ideology, not evidence of any of the depending upon how you slice it, six to eight, you know, white supremacist movements in the United States. And so in a case like that, where all you have to go on is racism, well, you know, there are far more people who are, who are racist or bigoted in the United States than who have actual ties to extremism. So we would exclude something like that. 
are there any that come to mind, whether it's this year and, you know, past couple of years that you really had to think about it, you know, because it wasn't so obviously one way or another, which I know, again, where this becomes an art more than, than a, a science. The most difficult one for me this past year was the murder of Ahmed Marquez Arbery in Georgia. This was the African-American man who was out jogging in Georgia, and he was chased by people in a vehicle and shot to death. Initially, nobody was arrested for this, but finally three people were arrested, charged with a number of counts related to the murder. And, you know, because these were three white men killing an African-American man and in very unusual circumstances, it certainly, you know, from the get-go opened up the possibility that there might have been some extremist connection. You know, initial looks into the background of the three suspects didn't really bring out anything. But later on in pretrial hearings, law enforcement alluded to, they have not yet made public, but they've alluded to allegedly racist social media posts on the part of some of the defendants. At least one references a known white supremacist group and another that references a known white supremacist singer, Johnny Rebel. That evidence by itself is certainly a strong indication that those individuals making those posts have racist beliefs, and they may suggest that, that one or more of them have full-fledged white supremacist beliefs. But we haven't yet seen the content. We've only seen very brief allusions to the fact that this content exists. And so based on that, essentially, I punted. As for this report right now, we're not adding this murder to our statistics yet because we don't have enough information to be clear, but it continues on our watch list, and we are monitoring this very closely. And depending upon what information comes out going forward, this may be a murder that does eventually get added to our statistics. Yeah, that's a, a really important point that there have been times, I think, I don't know if it's every year necessarily, but certainly in the years that I've been working with you, that I know that you've added to the total because it just took a while longer for the facts of the case to become clear. That's, that, that's right. Almost every single year, um, we not only compile you know, murders for that particular year, but we discover or uncover uh, usually from one to three additional murders for usually the past one to three years as well. I know that this year, you know, you mentioned the numbers is relatively low in comparison to certainly the past few years. I think that this report has probably received the most attention or a lot of attention over the past couple of years, not so much for the one year total, although that's part of it, but because it really brings in data over a longer period of time. One of the most cited statistics from our work is, you know, over the past 10 years, right-wing extremists have carried out, whether it's 75 or approximately that, depending on the year, percent of the murders, extremist-related murders in this country. Knowing that that statistic is widely cited, how reliable are murders as a statistic to measure extremism? That's a great question. Any type of data, any data set is going to have strengths and weaknesses. You know, tracking extremist-related murders, the one thing you have going for it is that you know that all those murders actually occurred. And we have pretty good evidence that these were extremists who committed them. Now, what we don't know with this is murders committed by extremists for which the extremist connection never became public. And so there are additional unknown number of murders that are out there. Based on the data that we do have, I can have some educated guesses as to what were not 
accurately counting. So, for example, we count white supremacist murders pretty well because white supremacist murders are easier to identify. It's easier to find out about the perpetrator's background. They're also more likely to be covered in the news because they're newsworthy. But a lot of times with a, a white supremacist, you may realize they're a white supremacist because their mugshot shows their face covered with white supremacist tattoos. But if an anti-government extremist gets arrested, there aren't very many visual identifiers like tattoos for anti-government extremists the way there are for white supremacists. And if they don't say anything during or after the commission of their crime, they would indicate that they're uh, uh, an anti-government extremist. Or if their social media profiles or other past information you know, doesn't have anything about that, it may be much harder to know that that person was actually an extremist. And this is also true for some other types of extremism as well, where unless the murder they were engaged in was, you know, very clearly an ideological killing, you know, somebody was really clearly targeted, you know, or they left clear evidence, you know, manifestos or social media detritus or what have you, sometimes that's just not going to be uncovered. So we know and we can make, you know, with the appropriate caution, we can make certain conclusions, draw certain lessons from the data that we have. While always being cognizant that there are these, you know, an an unknown additional number of extremist-related murders that probably will never be uncovered. Right. So it sounds like you're saying it's pretty reliable, but we know that there are certain examples that we are just undercounting and that going into it, people need to know that. Right. What we have is reliable, but for certain types of extremism, there's probably more that goes on, especially in terms of non-ideological killings. It's easier to attract killings where the motivation is clearly related to their ideology. But in cases where a motive may be unknown or it may be a non-ideological killing, that ideological background may never come to light. Could you talk a bit more about the non-ideological versus the ideological, like explaining what that means and why it's important that we are counting both of those? In our statistics, we track all killings committed by people with extremist ties, regardless of motive. And you know, essentially, there are sort of three categories of killings, killings for which the perpetrator's ideology played a primary or a secondary role. And, you know, the evidence supports that, and that's clear. But there are also killings where the motive is not clear. Maybe there was an ideological tie, although it's not readily apparent. Maybe there was no ideological tie. And then finally, there are killings that are very likely to be non-ideological in motive. Some of those are still tied to extremism. For example, sometimes extremists kill each other. They may kill someone because they view them as a rival. They may kill someone because they view them as a potential informant. And those are crimes related to the extremist group or movement that they belong to. But those people weren't targeted as ideological targets. And then there are extremist-related killings that don't have direct ties to extremism at all. So, for example... um, In the white supremacist movement, there is a lot of connections between the white supremacist movement and domestic violence. And there have been a number of incidents where white supremacists have killed girlfriends or spouses or children in cases of extreme domestic violence. Again, not an ideological motive for that, but it was an extremist who actually committed the murder. And um, we count those as well because to undercount those would be to greatly underplay how violent extremists can actually be by deleting a whole category of extremist-related deaths. Mm. Yeah, I know that You know, one of the criticisms that the report sometimes gets is that it includes both the 
ideological versus non-ideological because some people just assume that the examples here are ones in which they're all ideologically motivated. People are targeted for a reason. But I think that last point that you're making is critical, that there's something to be learned about the inherent violence of these groups and why it's important to track them based on other murders that they commit. Why do you think there's some resistance to people to willingly sort of accept non-ideological as relevant or important to the landscape as it is ideological murders? Some people think of extremism violence only in terms of terrorism or hate crimes. And so sometimes there's some psychological resistance to looking at murders if they don't fit one of those types of categories. In other cases, they just may not have uh, confronted that issue before. But you know, it, it tells us a lot about extremists if they are regularly or consistently committing certain types of murders other than purely ideological murders. And we also provide capsule descriptions of each killing so that people can come to their own conclusions as well and still use our data, even if they only want to include ideological-related killings. So we're not forcing our data on anybody. We're being very transparent and allowing people to look at what we've uncovered and if there's a way they can use it for their own purposes or with their own definitions or limitations, they're certainly welcome to do so. You know, a lot of discussion, especially in the past couple of years, has focused on left-wing extremism. And, you know, some people think it's not being taken seriously enough. Other people are trying to use a lot of hyperbole to suggest that's the biggest threat in the country. Why do you think left-wing extremists kill so fewer people than right-wing extremists? Well, there are several reasons for this. Part of it has to do with what right-wing extremists are like. Part of it has to do with the history of different far-left movements in the United States. Looking at it from the perspective of right-wing extremism, it's just a plain fact that there are a large number of right-wing extremist movements in this country, almost all of which have at least some association with violence. And so there's a lot of people producing those bodies, so to speak. Now, at one point, you know, at one point in our history, left-wing extremists were committing more violence than right-wing extremism. And this type of violence was associated with the new left and with black nationalist groups that started emerging in the mid-1960s. And this kind of peaked, this sort of violence peaked in the early 1970s when you had groups like the Black Liberation Army, which is essentially a spinoff of the East Coast Black Panthers, and other far-left groups targeting people for murders. In fact, the Black Liberation Army went on a campaign of assassinating police officers and, you know, were killing large numbers of people. But the uh, left-wing extremism of that period basically faded away by the early to mid-1980s. That's when you sort of have the last people are either arrested, killed, or give up the ghost. And furthermore, even during the 1970s, some of these left-wing extremist groups backed away from the idea of killing people. They felt it was okay to attack symbolic targets. You can set off a bomb in the Capitol. You can set off a bomb in the Pentagon, but you don't do it to kill people. You do it to cause property damage, to grab attention, but not to take lives. You know, there's been a tremendous amount of publicity stirred up by people on the right, not just the extreme right, but the mainstream right about Antifa, the you know left-wing activists who like to beat up white supremacists at public events and dox people online, you know, trying to build them up and to proclaim that there's some sort of major terrorist organization or something like this. And in fact, this past year, we had one of the killings, the only killing not by right-wing extremists was in Portland, Oregon, where essentially an Antifa activist killed someone from the far right. But you know what? You have to go back to 1993 
before you have another murder by someone who could be categorized as an Antifa activist. And so the left has just not generated the same type of extreme violence um, over the years that right-wing extremists have. And this is where, you know, being able to provide data is so critical because I think without a report like this that we do annually or, or other research that's done, you know, when people hear, you know, elected officials talk about the terrorist threat in this country is from left-wing extremists and ignoring some of the, the data on the ground, that's where the real value comes in. And I mean, I've been super pleased, not because the fact that we have to write this report, right, that you spend so much time, Mark, looking at extremists and murder, but because it's really necessary. It's our job to make sure that people are armed with the facts, because that's going to enable people to have a much better understanding of what's out there. You and I talk about a lot of things from extremism and murder to just extremism, sometimes just murder. But how do you deal with this report every year? I think people would want to hear, you know, obviously you're motivated by intellectual curiosity on these issues. This is something that's, you know, has super value for people's understanding. But, you know, you're looking at really bad things all year long, but especially when you're putting this report together. Are there any ways that you sort of approach this knowing that, all right, this is going to be a particularly hard time or... How do you deal with the fact that you're dealing with extremism and hate and violence all day long? Well, it is often difficult to deal with, and dealing with the extremist-related murders are one of the more difficult parts. Some types of extremism that I deal with are not necessarily as dark. For example, the sovereign citizen movement, an anti-government extremist movement, this is a movement that I have tracked for over 25 years, and sovereign citizens can and do kill people. There were deaths at the hands of sovereign citizens this past year. But they also do a lot of other things other than killing people, including all sorts of white-collar crime, um, including bizarre episodes or even humorous episodes because of the peculiar nature of their own beliefs. I'm sorry, I just have to um, say, the, you know, citing the sovereign citizen movement as the, the lighter side of extremism is just a, I want to pause on that for a well, minute. Well, yeah, you know, everything is relative. I mean, the, light, the lighter side of extremism never gets very light, but, you know, you take it where you find it. Right. The thing about the extremist-related murders is, of course, that, you know, in every one of these, they're not statistics, right? In every one of these incidents, someone has died, mm. and in a lot of the cases, these murders are not, they're not just murders. They're not just killings. Some of them are torture murders. Some of them are mass murders, of course. Some of them are murders of small children. I could give a long list of some of the most you know, disturbing murder-related anecdotes that I have encountered over the years. It would be enough to put anybody off their dinner. And even for someone jaded like me, I, I've been dealing with extremism since 1994, full-time professionally since 1996. And even my jaded self, I get shocked or dismayed by some of these things. Not everybody is cut out for dealing with this type of subject matter, you know, extremism and terrorism in the long run. It gets to people. It gets to me. It could get to some other people even more, depending upon their psychology. I have the benefit that you alluded to before, intellectual curiosity. I originally got into this, this whole area of extremism and terrorism purely out of curiosity, without any real intent at all. And throughout this entire time, that sort of curiosity, the desire to understand these guys, to know more about them, has also been an important driver. It really probably more than anything else has sustained me in the long term. 
I was going to ask you actually, you know, about that because I imagine seven-year-old Mark may not have been thinking that, you know, you'll be producing a murder and extremism report every year. What was that moment where that intellectual curiosity became something beyond that, that you essentially wanted to commit your life to understanding and finding ways to combat it? It was a really slow process. There wasn't one single moment, but there was one moment that was more important than any of the other moments. And it it sort of started me down the road of doing it professionally. And I should back up and say, I typically date my getting involved with monitoring or studying extremism in 1994. The reason is, Back at that time, I was a graduate student. I was finishing up my dissertation in military history. And the subject of my dissertation was the historical militia, like the Minutemen of the Revolution. And it was just coincidentally at that period in time when this movement was first emerging, what would become known as the militia movement, these groups popping up around the country calling themselves militias and claiming to be descended from the historical militia. That prompted my curiosity and also just my argumentativeness because it got me interested in it originally because I just wanted to debunk their false claims to be descended from the historical militia. In looking into them for that purpose, I found out more about them and, and got interested. You know, and I and I began to want to know, well, where did they come from? What did they believe? What were they doing? What other groups were out there like them? And without making a conscious decision, I found myself spending more and more time you know, looking at these groups, essentially right-wing extremist groups, especially anti-government extremist groups, to the point where I had developed a second area of specialization in addition to military history. Now, I might never have done anything with it. It might have just been something I was interested in, that I was curious about, except that a year later, in April 1995, the Oklahoma City bombing occurred. Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols bombed the Mira Federal Building in Oklahoma City, killing 168 men, women, and children wounding over 400 more. And I realized at that point that people out there needed to know more about these people and that I was sort of unusually in a position to be able to tell them more. And in the wake of the Oklahoma City bombing, I did something in the summer of 1995, which was at the time extremely rare. Today, no one would blink an eye. I I created a website. I created a website called the Militia Watchdog website, where I put up information about militia groups and other types of extremists. And this was at a time when the the internet was so tiny, the World Wide Web was so tiny, I literally could and did look at every mention of the word militia on the entire (laughs) internet. Right? That's that's how tiny it was. (laughs) That would take 17 years now, just for one day. Yeah. Yeah. And that website and all the material and information on it was actually what came to the attention of some people uh, working with the Justice Department and the FBI to put together a training program for senior state and local law enforcement officers. Again, this is, of course, in the wake of the Oklahoma City bombing. Everybody needs to know more. And so they needed a subject matter expert, and they thought I knew my stuff, and they you know, met with me and invited me to become part of the pilot program. And then by the end of 1996, Congress had actually funded the program, and they asked me to come on full-time and be the research director and the lead trainer for the program. And so from that point on, basically January 1997 to the present day, I've been dealing full-time professionally um, with extremism and terrorism. But I never, I mean, I never planned it. Basically, Timothy McVeigh and the internet got me where I am today. (laughs) I was going to say, it's almost like it was, uh, for many people, 9-11 was their moment where their 
commitment to the study of extremism became clear for them. And it sounds like, you know, the Oklahoma City bombing was your 9-11 moment or, you know, the reverse. That's exactly what it was. A lot of people who listen to this, I think, may be new to the field or trying to figure out if this is something that they want to do. Any tips that you have for people who are considering, you know, doing this either professionally or even just on the side with dealing with this work, not just the heaviness, but like what they should be careful of as they enter this area? The most important advice I can impart is that to really become expert in this area, and this is a niche area, this is not something you can parachute into and do a meaningful project and then go off and study rutabagas, right? To really be effective here, this is something you have to invest in. You know, related to that, knowledge of methodologies does not substitute for subject matter knowledge. So, for example, you know, we saw after 9-11 and then we've seen more recently with regard to right-wing extremism, we have seen a number of people, data scientists of one sort or another, try to sort of jump into this arena because they have access to certain quantitative methods or certain web scraping methods or other things. And they're very familiar with those methods and they want to apply them to right-wing extremism. But if you yourself don't have in-depth knowledge of right-wing extremism or partner with someone who does and who can provide that, you can end up doing a whole lot of work and the results of your work, what you try to publish, what you come up with, may be something that everybody already knows. You may be unable to recognize the significance of what you find because there will be terms or phrases that you'll miss that extremists use because you're not familiar with them or, or certain things that have a particular significance you won't notice because you don't look at this on a daily basis. And I've seen this. I mean, I have I have seen many published works that essentially provided little of worth once you really got into them. And so it's important whether your methodologies are investigative methodologies or whether they're quantitative methodologies. You have to pair that to actual knowledge of the extremists that you're looking at and what they believe, what they say and how they say it, their vocabulary, their actions, their tactics, their symbology, their ideology, and not just like a cursory view of their ideology. So you've been doing this now for either 25 or 27 years or so. What makes you keep going? I mean, at this point, I I can't join the circus. So (laughs) certain doors are not open to me at this moment. But frankly, I mean, you know, extremism doesn't stop. They're always causing problems. And if I can help people deal with the problems that these cause, if I can help law enforcement catch some of these folks before they can do something, or at least before they can do something again, right? If I can educate legislators to, you know, help craft legislation that can help deal with some of the problems that extremism cause, if I can help, um, you know, activists and civic society about some of these problems so that they can uh, dedicate resources to this, then that really does a positive good and can continue to do a positive good. And this is not, you know, this subject matter is a dark subject matter, but this one of the silver linings that it has is that it is really tied to the public good. You know, one additional piece of advice that I can give to people just getting into this and, you know, wanting to establish themselves in this area of extremism and terrorism is, you know, when you look at, let's say, right-wing extremism, there's a long history of right-wing extremism in the United States. And understanding that whole history and all the players and all the different ideologies and movements and sub-movements and everything, it takes time to master that. Uh, And there's no substitute for that time. But there are times when you can get in on the ground floor of something. 
you know, every now and then a new movement emerges or a new phenomenon emerges, whether that is the alt-right or the Boogaloo movement or QAnon or the next thing to emerge. And if you're there at that moment when it emerges and start researching and tracking at that point, no one will know more about it than you. And so that's another thing that newer researchers can always do is try to look for emerging movements, emerging conspiracy theories. There are a lot of things that you can study out there that are very interesting in and of themselves, but don't necessarily have much in the way of value to society other than the knowledge and understanding itself. But this is something that has practical, applicable knowledge as well as theoretical knowledge of understanding. And what's more is that practical, applicable knowledge directly can help people. Mm. It can help people avoid being victims. It can help people being added to the statistics that I count every year, the murder statistics, the terrorism statistics. And so that's an important thing. I hear you. I mean, in some ways, people don't think of it like this, but it's a dream job. If you have an intellectual curiosity, you want to understand why. And then in the process of doing so, you know, have an impact and make things better. What's better than that, right? I've obviously been working with you for, I think, over 20 years, which is a crazy sentence to say, just because it makes me feel super old. But uh, I think the other thing that you bring, which I think is just really important for all of us who do this work, is a healthy sort of sense of humor and perspective that enables the the dark days that we often find ourselves going through and all the work that we do makes it easier. So I, I really appreciate, you know, having the opportunity to work with you for all these years. And I'm glad you decided to to do this back in 1994. I think we've all benefited from that. Well, our gain is Hollywood's loss. That's all I can say. <laughs> so for more information, on the Murder and Extremism 2020 report and previous reports, visit ADL.org. And for additional information on all types of extremism, our blogs, our backgrounders, our resources, also visit our website at ADL.org. Mark, thanks so much for making the time to talk about this report and your work more broadly. And uh, I'll see you tomorrow. Well, thanks for having me. It was really nice talking with you. Really, really appreciate it, Mark. is an anti-hate organization with a timeless mission to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all. The ADL Center on Extremism is a foremost authority on extremism, terrorism, and all forms of hate. The center investigates and disrupts emerging threats online and on the ground, providing resources, expertise, and training that enable law enforcement officers, public officials, and community leaders, as well as internet and technology companies, to identify and counter emerging threats. For more information, visit ADL.org. American University's Center for University Excellence, Q, is proud to partner with ADL on this important podcast. Q strives to connect academic expertise with the public on areas of pressing import. This podcast is a project of the Center's Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, Peril. To learn more, visit American.edu backslash P-E-R-I-L.